to God's Word this morning. I want you to turn over to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. The life of our Lord was marked by, I guess you could say, contrasts. You remember in the beginning of his ministry, he operated almost in obscurity. Not a lot of folks followed him in the, in the very beginning, just a few twelve. However, as the news of his power and the news of his claims to be the Messiah spread, the Bible tells us that people began to flock around him. Um, they were drawn to him by the excitement in this man's life, the excitement of his miracles, the unique message that he preached was not found anywhere else in the religious system of the day. And they were, they were drawn to him. And by the second year of his earthly ministry, Jesus was basically just surrounded with thrones of people everywhere as he traveled, made it difficult for him to travel. And these crowds were with him until he began to preach the message of extreme commitment as we find in John 6. And by the time Jesus reached the end of his ministry, the crowds were composed of those who were committed to following him. Now, it has to be stated that the crowds were not always in favor of the Lord, right? In any crowd, you have a mixed batch of people. You may have people that are there to see the president as he rides by in his motorcade, but you may also have people there in the crowd that want to do harm to the president as he rides by in his motorcade. So you have a mixed batch of people here following Christ. It's the same thing here. Some people loved him. They thought he was Messiah. Some people hated him with a vengeance. And many times the, cro- the crowds that surrounded Christ were comprised of those who were really violently opposed to his teaching. Um, and I think that it's, it's important to be reminded of that. I mean, even among his own disciples, right? Who was there? Judas. Even among his own group, there was that one who was against him. But remember this. Whenever you're part of a crowd, you have to understand a crowd is always fickle. A crowd goes with the wind. That's why it's so important, young people, never to allow yourself to be forced into part of a crowd. Don't allow them to dictate how you're going to live or decisions you're going to make just because everybody else is doing it. It's so important to learn that at a young age. You need to be man enough or woman enough to make your own decisions. And hopefully those decisions are decisions in accord with God's word. But as Jesus reached the last week of his life on earth, The crowds were still there. One thing that strikes me about these crowds that that surrounded Jesus during this time of this last week of earthly ministry is the fact that they were engaged in a lot of screaming. There was a lot of shouting going on. Some of it good, some of it bad. And this morning I want to travel with Jesus as he goes through these three events during his life during the last week of his ministry. And at all three of these events that we're going to look at this morning, the crowds were shouting. 
They were shouting in presence of the Lord. And all these events lead up to the day, as the message says, when the shouting stopped. Now, let's look at our text for this morning. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. And when he had seen these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. By the way, if anyone asks you, why are you untying this colt? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, excuse me, why are you untying our colt? And they said, oh, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Just a little background here so we understand what's going on in our text. It's very important to keep things textualized, to keep things in their text. So I want to share a little bit of what's led up to this and, and what the circumstance that we find our text in this morning. As he approached <clears throat> Jerusalem, Jesus also reached the end of his three years of ministry. Now, his three years of ministry had really been preceded by 30 years of obscurity. We don't know really anything other than he went to the temple one time. (laughs) So he was about to reach the final goal set before him by his heavenly father. And as the multitudes followed along with him to celebrate the Passover, okay, this is the time of the year when they celebrate the Passover, little did they know that as they followed along with Jesus, shouting that they were literally accompanying the Passover lamb. They didn't get that. There was a census taken about 10 years after this time. And in that census, it's very interesting because they found that the number of sacrificial lambs slaughtered in and around Jerusalem at the Passover was determined to be over 250,000. About 260,000 to be exact. Now, you've got to stop and you've got to think, okay, that's a, lot, that's a lot of lambs, you know. 
Um, and there was one lamb allowed to be offered for up to ten people. So I'm sure people weren't rich. Everybody didn't sacrifice their own lamb. They probably did it one to ten or one to eight. But just to give you an idea of how many people are kind of enthroned around Jerusalem, it could have well numbered over two million. And so the, the city is just teeming with people. They're pressed up against each other. There's definitely no room in any inns. Everybody came to bring their Passover lamb. But before he and the twelve entered Jerusalem, they stopped at this little, you might call it a hamlet, Bethphage. And Bethphage was this little hamlet or district between Jerusalem and Bethany. And as a traveler would approach Jerusalem from the east, would come to Bethany, about two miles out, and then pass through this little, this little hamlet, Bethphage, on the slope of the Mount of Olives, on the way into Jerusalem. And except for being closely associated with the Mount of Olives and Bethany, we don't know anything about this town. There's, there's no biblical, historical, or archaeological evidence of its existence. So we don't know anything about it. But let's get a little bit of background about the, this week from a, a biblical perspective. Because John tells us that Jesus visited Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany. In John chapter 12, it says six days before the Passover, making it probably Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath. And so as he faced the coming weeks of pain and anguish and sacrifice, he sought out, Christ did, the comfort of his companions with those beloved friends. But even in the brief time of comfort, these Stabs of hell continued to afflict him, reminding him of what was to come. And while Mary anointed his feet with costly perfume and wiped them with her hair, we remember that story. What happens? The traitor Judas, who was also a thief, made a hypocritical objection to that beautiful act of sacrifice and saying, oh, we should be more concerned about the poor. What a waste. That's what religion does to people. Well, no doubt with deep anguish in the heart of Christ for Judas's hardened unbelief at this point. <clears throat> in John 12, Jesus rebukes Judas and he says, let her alone in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you. And then he makes this statement, but you do not always have me. Christ knew he wasn't going to be around much longer. And he was trying to communicate that message to his followers, to his disciples. Probably on the next day, <clears throat> which would have been the first day of the week, or Sunday, a great number of Jews came to Bethany to see Jesus and also to see Lazarus, whom he's raised from the dead. News got around. Let's go see the guy that used to be dead. And because Lazarus was a living testimony of the Lord's supernatural power, guess who else wanted to see Lazarus? The chief priests. Because they wanted to kill him. Oh, you raised him from the dead, huh? Well, we'll show you how, how much you raised him from the dead. 
tells us in John 12, 10, the chief priests took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death also. So it was therefore probably on, and this is important, Monday, the next day after the crowd visited him in Bethany, that Jesus came to Bethphage and prepared to enter Jerusalem through the east gate of the city. Now we celebrate today Palm Sunday. But I think biblically there's a very good argument that can be made that it really should be Palm Monday. Because <laughs> that's probably when he rode into Jerusalem. And when you take that chronology, it really eliminates the problem of Silent Wednesday. Well, what happened on Wednesday? There's nothing that happens on Wednesday in Scripture. Because the Gospel accounts would have no record of Jesus' activities on Wednesday if the triumphal entry had been on Sunday as we celebrate it. So in what was one of the most momentous weeks of Jesus' ministry, a gap of one day is kind of hard to explain. But if you believe that he rode in to Jerusalem on Monday instead of Sunday, that gap goes away. Additional support is also given to us from the Mosaic requirement that sacrificial lambs for the Passover were to be selected on the 10th day of the month of the first month and kept in the household until sacrificed on the 14th. That's how it was to be done. And it just so happens in the year that Jesus was crucified, whether it was 30 or 33, pick your date, the 10th of Nisan was the Monday of Passover week. So if Jesus entered Jerusalem triumphantly on Monday, he was received into the hearts of the Jewish people. Listen, as a nation, much as a family received their own sacrificial lamb into their home. You can see the imagery. And so in doing so, our Lord would have fulfilled the Passover symbolism, even in that smallest of details, being received by the people on the 10th of Nisan. Now, continuing that perfect fulfillment in Scripture, he was then crucified on Friday, the 14th, the 14th day of Nisan, as the true Passover lamb sacrifice for the sins of the world. Now, the story that we read this morning in Scripture, the account, tells us that two of his disciples were told to go into the village opposite them, where they would immediately find a donkey tied, in the other gospel accounts, and a colt with her. Now, although the village was nearby, the two animals obviously weren't in plain sight, or Jesus would have said, hey, go get me that donkey. No, he had to tell them where to go. See, it, it talks about the omniscience of our Lord. He knew those animals would be there. He even knew that the people would say, hey, why are you untying this animal? Because he told his disciples ahead of time. I mean, only in his omniscience could Jesus have known that. I think it's kind of interesting that the donkey and her colt would be found. I mean, I think it would have been a lot more difficult to take a young colt away and leave its mother behind. Jesus knew that. Hey, bring them. Jesus also knew the disciples would be questioned by taking the animals. So he lets them know, just tell them the Lord has need of them. Mark reports that some of the bystanders who Luke says were its owners, what are you doing untying that colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission to take it. 
You have to understand, beloved, that Jesus' entire life, his entire ministry, was marked by basically two overriding purposes. Number one, to do his heavenly Father's will. We see that over and over and over again. He was consumed with doing not his will, but his Father's will. And then also, he was consumed with fulfilling all the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. His first coming. And he did that. And so much more. It says here, it makes reference to the, the daughter of Zion. And that basically refers to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Sometimes it's referred to as Zion. Because Mount Zion is the city's highest and most prominent hill. And so this prophecy that's quoted in verse the verses of Scripture here, are are basically all the way back to Zechariah, who 500 years earlier predicted that the people of Jerusalem would hail the Messiah as their king as he was coming into the city, and that he would be gentle, humble, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fowl of the beast of burden. Zechariah 9.9, that's what it says. You might ask yourself, why would he be riding on a donkey? Seems kind of like a lowly animal to ride on. Why wouldn't he be on some big golden chariot or, you know, with a big white stallion? But that's exactly what the prophet predicted would happen, and that's exactly what was fulfilled in the divine plan. See, he was not at the time intended to come to this earthly splendor to reign in earthly power. That's not what Christ had in mind. That's not what the Father had in mind. He did not come in wealth, as we know it, but he came in poverty. He did not come in grandeur, but he came in meekness, in lowliness. He did not come to slay all of Israel's enemies and free them from the Romans, but he came to save all mankind. The incarnation was the time of his humiliation, not time for his glorification. And that's very important to understand for the context. Because he was a king like no other king. His coronation was like no other coronation. I mean, by the standards and purposes of earthly kings, when a king comes into town, it should be a triumphant event. But Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was anything but triumphant. By the standards and purposes of God, it was exactly what it was meant to be, though. And so Jesus is coming in on this donkey, even on a colt, the fowl, the beast of the burden, was not a put-down. That wasn't how it was viewed. It was a sovereign choice of God the Father and God the Son, who himself willingly came to earth as the servant Savior, to take upon himself the sin of the world. That was his role. I mean, when you stop and think of the imagery there, nothing could be more appropriate than the bearer of the world's sin to enter the holy city of Zion riding in a lowly beast of burden. So as he rode through the gates, riding on a donkey, he's basically making the claim to everyone around him, yes, I am the promised one, I am the Messiah. I did come to set you free. But he came to set them free from something they did not want to be set free from. 
What did they want to be set free from? The Romans. That was on their mind. They said, yeah, Jesus, let's go to Jerusalem and we're going to kick, kick the Romans out and we're going to take over. We're going to be free. We know that's your plan. That's what the Messiah would want to do. That's what the, the king of the Jews would do for his people. That's what they were looking for. But when Jesus came riding into town on this young donkey, <laughs> I'm sure they were scratching their heads like, what's going on, Lord? This doesn't make sense. But I want you to understand this culturally. When we think of donkeys in America, we think of, you know, stupid animals, right? Kind of the, I mean, that's the illustration. You know, you always see the, the little cartoon of a donkey sitting with a dunce cap in the corner or something. Yeah, it's just, that's just the way we look at it. But you know what? Culturally, back then, it's not so. In the first century. Ancient manuscripts, as well as historical documents, actually are filled with the fact that it was a noble animal. It was an animal of a king. The judges rode on donkeys. Kings rode on donkeys. The sons of kings rode on donkeys. You know what's neat? About when Jesus rode into Jerusalem? Culturally, when a king rode into a city on a donkey, the imagery was that he was coming in peace. He was coming in peace. When a king would ride into a city on a horse, look out, because there's going to be some bloodshed. Somebody's in trouble. But when a king would ride in on a donkey, he was coming in the name of peace. And Jesus, in fulfilling all these prophecies about him, was making an incredibly powerful statement. But they all missed it. <laughs> he wasn't riding into Jerusalem as this warring king. There was no chariot. There was no white horse. Just this little donkey. But the statement was simply this. Yes, I'm the Messiah, but I come in peace. I don't come to make war. I come to give you peace in your spirit. A lot of people today think that God's just mad. He's just a mad God. He's angry at everybody and everything. And that's simply not true. Yes, does God have wrath about sin? Definitely. Does he have anger towards sin? Definitely. But God is also a very loving God. He's a very peaceful God. He wants the very best for you. He doesn't want your life to be miserable. He created you. He created everything about you. Your personality, the way you look, the way you handle yourself. He created all that. He knows what lies in the deep recesses of your heart. He knows your needs, your desires, your wants. And he was, by riding in on this donkey, he was identifying himself, above all others, as the Messiah. One commentator said it was kind of interesting, the choice of a donkey. It, identi it's, it, it identified him with the kings in the royal time of David, as I just said. But he also said this, the use of a donkey speaks of Jesus' inner spirit. It's in Zechariah where it says that Jesus was gentle and riding on a donkey. See, that's the attitude that really was intrinsic in the life of Christ. 
So much so that even Paul, when he was writing to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, he says, your attitude should be the same attitude as that of Jesus Christ. Well, what does that look like? He went on and he told us, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, he was willing to give up his Godship, all the privileges that he had in glory before he came here. He set it aside and he was willing to embrace humanity. You don't do that being a proud individual. The fact that the donkey was borrowed is even further evidence. He didn't even have his own donkey. (laughs) I mean, you know, you always hear, oh, he didn't have a place to lay his head. Yeah, he didn't have anything to ride on either. Didn't have his own wheels, didn't have his own car. And I love the instructors to the people who own the donkey. If they ask you, just tell, tell them or tell him the Lord needs it. Maybe he knew that that person was already one of his followers. Who knows? But it beautifully portrayed him both as king and servant. Well, let's look at this first incident as we look at the day the shouting stopped. And you find it there in your outline. The crowds shouted at his entrance. They were laying down palm branches and they were, they were screaming. And it's, it's interesting when you see that. What is all the excitement about? First of all, the excitement was about who this man was, Jesus. Because they had experienced excitement when they were around Jesus. I don't know about you, but ever since I've been a Christian, life has been kind of exciting. Because you never know what's, what's going to happen next. You just don't know. Because your plans aren't your own plans. I mean, I remember graduating from, from high school and saying, okay, I'm going to go get my degree in criminology and, and be a police officer, and maybe, maybe I'll go into one of the armed forces and, and be an a, you know, officer in their police policeman in there, MP, and then get out and and go into police work. That was my goal. That was my plan. I got as far as getting the degree in criminology, criminal justice, completed that, and then God radically changed my life. And all of a sudden, I found myself still wanting to be a police officer, still wanting to be involved in law enforcement to some degree, I mean, just ask my wife, if we're driving down the freeway and there's a siren or a red light, man, my next, I'm, I'm looking, you know, it doesn't matter where it's at. I just am attracted to those kind of things. It's a little kid in me. It's embarrassing sometimes. I remember talking to somebody out here, I don't know if it was a contractor or what, and, and we were in this conversation about something and, and nobody was around, but I heard a, a you know, down here and thing. And, and I just, I just walk. He goes, "Where are you going?" I said, "Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to check out what that siren was." And he goes, "Wow, that's that's pretty crazy." So I got to kind of grain myself in sometimes. You know, I'm like your little kid when the, the red lights and the sirens go. Oh, where's it at? You know. Well, that's the way it was around Jesus. Everybody wanted to be around Jesus. There was an excitement. If you would have told me when I graduated from college. Oh, you're going you're gonna to pastor a church or you're going to be a youth pastor? I would say, you're crazy. I don't even know what you're talking about. 
I'm a Catholic. I go to Catholic church. Why, why would I do something like that? And God changed my heart. And all of a sudden, I found myself ministering to, to young people, teenagers for 14, 15 years. With no... See, there's one thing about youth pastors. Youth pastors are, 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 are proud they're youth pastors. I remember going to youth pastor conferences. And every time, you know, we'd, we'd look around and say, oh, where's so-and-so? Ah, uh, they left our ranks. What do you mean? Oh, they, they, now they're a pastor of a church. You know, it's kind of like they move up kind of a deal, you know, right? And I thought, man, I'm never going to do that. You know, sell out, you know. Youth forever, you know, we're gonna, I'm going to be 80 years old and going all-nighters and doing all this stuff. You know, that was my mentality. And it was kind of a, a pridefulness that you, you had inside that you would never sell out and become a pastor if you were a youth pastor. But you know what? I didn't know God's plan. I had the slightest idea what God was going to do. Some of you sitting today, sitting here today are wondering, what's the next step, God? Isn't it exciting that you don't know? It's kind of exciting. I mean, you could either be dead tomorrow or you could just be blessed incredibly. You don't know. And if you die as a believer, you go to be with the Lord, so that's a win-win anyway. But there's an excitement when you're part of what Christ is doing. Because part of it is he's doing it through you. You're not just limited to your own abilities. You're not limited to your own resources. You're not limited to your own intellect. God wants to do something through all of us. And it's only as we yield our lives to him that he's able to do that. And so here we have crowds of people following after Jesus the man, and they followed him because of this excitement that they experienced. I mean, he was raising people from the dead. He was making the lame walk. He was healing the blind. And you know what? Even today, people are still interested in Jesus. For stuff like that. They only want the miracles and the excitement. Let me tell you this. Just because this crowd loved the miracles, it doesn't mean they were all saved. We can't get sidetracked and just follow Jesus because it's like a big carnival. Secondly, we see here there's an excitement because of Jesus' message, Jesus the messenger. I mean, this guy shared information with people that just blew their minds. They had experienced not only excitement, but enlightenment. Some of these people were shouting in excitement over the radical teachings that Jesus taught them, freeing them of the legalism that held them captive. And others were shouting at Jesus because those radical teachings were threatening their power grip on the religion of the, jet, of the day, Judaism. He was a different kind of teacher. And they were drawn to that. In John chapter 6, verse 47, Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, who be, whoever believes has eternal life. I mean, that's a radical statement. In Matthew chapter 7, 28 and 29, it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings. In other words, he just blew 
the top right off their heads. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. There's still that crowd that flocks to the unusual. There's still people that can hear someone who's maybe a little different. Maybe they don't stand behind a pulpit, but maybe they sit on a stool, or maybe they communicate a little differently, or maybe they wear different clothes or whatever. And it's almost like these people are mesmerized and they act as if they, they, they've heard an angel speaking. Oh, this guy, yeah, this messenger is just incredible. He just relates so well. People are attracted to the unusual. That's why the art and, and, and science, really, of preaching has fallen by the wayside in so many churches. Because it's not interesting. Let's have a light show. Let's sing some crazy songs and dance around a little bit and heal some people. That would get a crowd. I mean, you sit there for 45 minutes, this guy preaches? That's what you do at your church? Are you serious? See, just because this crowd loved the message, it doesn't mean they're saved, beloved. It doesn't mean they're saved. And the last thing there, Jesus the Messiah, they experienced the enlightenment and the excitement. They also experienced expectation. Remember, this is Palm Sunday, or Monday as the case. This is the day that they were going to commemorate the Lord's triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. It's supposed to be a wonderful day of great excitement and joy. But you think in the life, in the heart of our Savior, it was a day of disappointment. It was a day of heartbreak. See, this was the day that Jesus made it clear to all who saw him just who he was. All through his, his life, public ministry, Jesus had proven himself to be the Messiah. He had fulfilled all the prophecies, performed all the miracles, had told the Jews repeatedly that he was the Savior that they were looking for. I'm the one, I'm the one. And they just steadfastly refused to believe him. They steadfastly believe, they refused to believe any of his claims. And see, this was the day, beloved, when Jesus drew the line in the sand. He appeared on the donkey, and he rode down from the Mount of Olives. There was no doubt as to what he was doing. He was revealing himself as the Messiah of Israel. And you see the multitudes shouting, lifting their voices, laying down palm branches. They know what he's doing. And they're certain that he's come to deliver them from the bondage of Rome. That's why they're excited. And so they cheer him. And they shout praises to God because of him. Unfortunately, they missed the entire significant significance of the whole event. It is true that Jesus came to, in fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, colt the fowl of a donkey. He also did this to force the hand of the Jewish leaders. They planned to kill Jesus after Passover. 
in Mark chapter, Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 to 5, we're told, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. See, the whole reason that Jesus came to Calvary was for the sole, or came to Jerusalem, was the sole purpose of going to Calvary. And these people missed it all. I mean, this man is headed to the cross, and they're thinking somehow he's going to overthrow the Roman government. I mean, that was really the sole purpose of his existence. Why did Christ exist? Isaiah 57, why did he come to earth? It says, but the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. John 18, 37, it says, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Down in Matthew 16, 21, he says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day he was going to be raised. Let me tell you, just because someone thinks he, Jesus, is the Messiah, doesn't mean they're saved. Doesn't mean they're saved. There are a lot of people who enjoy the miracles of Jesus. There are a lot of people who enjoy the message of Jesus. There's even a lot of people who enjoy the Messiahship of Jesus. But they miss the fact that salvation does not come through anything else but a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in him fully and his sacrifice for our sins. Jesus did not come to earth, beloved, to heal you. Jesus did not come to feed you. Jesus did not even come to bless you or to teach you or to fulfill a bunch of dusty old prophecies about the people of Israel. Jesus came for one sole purpose, to go to the cross and to die for the sins of man. That's why he came. He came to be the savior of the world. And until you know him in that kind of a relationship, I'm sorry, but you don't know him at all. They shouted at his entrance to Jerusalem, but they didn't understand that there's more to the story. Those who know him know that there is a reason to shout and there's a reason to praise him. They know that he is worthy of our honor, of our praise. However, those who do not know him will always attempt to stop those who do know him from glorifying his name. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't want a bunch of rocks doing my praise. I want to be able to praise my Lord and Savior with all my being for everything that he's done. 
or the, the crowd shouted at his entrance. The crowds also shouted at his examination in John chapter 19, verses 13 to 16. John 19, verses 13 to 16. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement. And in Aramaic, Gabata. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Those words there, cry out, really has the connotation of screaming for something, demanding something, demanding something be done. This crowd had been whipped into a frenzy. And the only thing could satisfy this crowd was the blood of Christ running down a cross. Some of the same crowd that shouted that last Sunday are shouting for his death. See, they're fickle. They don't know what they want. And this man whom they supposed to be the Messiah didn't act as they thought he should. They wrote him off as an imposter. That's why we find some of the same people who were calling him the king when he rode into Jerusalem are now crying for his blood. They considered him an imposter. Why? Because he didn't overthrow Rome. That's what they thought was going to happen. That's what was supposed to be, they understood, prophesied in Jeremiah 33. It says in Jeremiah 33, verse 14, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah in those days. And at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute judgment. Justice and righteousness in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings. And to make sacrifices forever. He wasn't fulfilling what they thought in their mind he should have been doing. But they also considered him an instigator as well. In John chapter 11 it says that he defied their rulers. Jesus didn't cow down under the authority of the religious priests and the scribes. He possessed an authority that was far greater than they had ever even hoped to have. But they looked at him as an instigator. And they also considered him even an intruder. Because he spoke against their religion. 
He claimed to be God. The high priest, it says at one point, rent his garments. You know, as you sit here this morning, I don't know if you know this or not, but just as Jesus was on trial at this time in history, as you're sitting there in your seat and you're hearing this message, let me tell you, Jesus is on trial in your heart. He's on trial in your heart today. You are either in his corner or you're one of those who lifts his voices against him. You can't have it both ways. You're either for Jesus or you're against Jesus. If you're one of those who is not yielded to the Lord by trusting Jesus for your salvation, then you're part of the crowd that cries out against him. Because make no mistake about it, Jesus is on trial in your heart this morning. I want to ask you, which side of the issue are you on? What's your verdict concerning Jesus? They shouted at his entrance. They shouted at his examination. They also shouted at his execution. We'll look more fully at this on Good Friday. But in Mark chapter 15, 25 to 37, we see the context, the horrors of his death, what he was subject to as our Savior. Even while the Lord Jesus hung on the cross, the crowds all around him cried out to him. They mocked him, it says. They ridiculed him. They falsely accused him. One part of Scripture, it even says that they walked by and they, they wagged their heads at him. You say, what does that mean? You know what? It's kind of the equivalent of what little elementary kids do on the playground. You know, they stick their fingers in their ears and they, that's basically what that means. They're mocking him. They're making fun of him. Oh, you're the Messiah now, are you? How do those nails feel through your hands? How does that spike feel through your feet? Even those men who were dying with him on the cross joined in, the Bible says, with the crowd as they mocked the Lord together till one of them finally was touched by the presence of the Lord and was gloriously converted at the last second before his own death. See, by this time, the tolerance the crowd had for this strange man with this strange message basically had turned to pure hatred. They hated Jesus. They hated Jesus for who he was. They hated Jesus for what he stood for. And they wanted him dead. And they wanted his teachings to die with him. Just in closing, why all the anger? I mean, what's the deal here? Is this this mob mentality, run amok, or what? Well, you know what? The first thing is they misunderstood Christ's mission. Once again, they were looking for somebody who would overthrow Rome. They were looking for a revolutionary. And what they missed was Jesus did not come to revolt, but he came for redemption. They were so busy looking for this Messiah who would, they thought would usher in the kingdom that they totally missed the true Messiah. I 
Isaiah 53, 1 to 12. Spelled it out for him. They just missed it. And you know what? It's unfortunate. But even today, people still miss it. You ask people why Jesus came to earth. You hear all kinds of things. Well, let me tell you this morning, Jesus did not come to this earth just to be an example. That's not why he came. He didn't come just to show you the way. He didn't even come to be a teacher. One who communicated truth. He did not come as what we would call a social reformer today. One who desired an increase in the life standard of those people. That's not the reason Jesus came, beloved. Jesus Christ came to this world. He explains it when he says, I came as the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. He came for one purpose and for one purpose only. Jesus came into the world to die. He came into the world to die. He summed up his mission statement in one clear statement. In Luke 19, 10. He says it very clearly. And I think we need to be reminded of that. Because sometimes we think that Jesus is just here to make our lives a little better and and happy. Jesus is here for our felt needs. No, he's not. He said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what? The lost. The lost. Who's the lost? Everyone's lost. Whether you know it or not, you're lost. Worst thing is when someone's lost and they won't admit it. Wives, you know what I'm talking about, right? When you're on the trip. This is maybe before GPS times, right? Why don't we just stop and ask somebody? I think you're lost. I'm not lost. Well, right there's a guy that says, you just go ask. Now we'll find it. Half hour, 45 minutes later. All you have to do is stop and ask somebody. No, no, no. We're, I think we're closer. We're closer now. We're, it's, it's, it's probably right around the corner. Two hours later. Will you please just stop and ask somebody? Okay. So you stop the car. You pull into the little gas station. Head hanging low and you go in. Excuse me. <laughs> Question for you. Could you tell me where such and such address is? We've all been there. We didn't want to admit it. We're lost. We are lost today. The Bible says clearly that all have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We all need the forgiveness of God. But they misunderstood why Christ came. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. Let me ask you a question this morning. Has Jesus fulfilled that mission in your life? That's what he desires to do, to seek and to save that which is lost. But they also misapplied Scripture's message. When Jesus came to the world, he came to a people and a nation that was very religious. He came to a people who knew the Word of God. They were to be stewards of the Word of God. 
They were looking for the advent of their Messiah. And somehow in their study of scriptures, they totally missed Christ. They totally missed Jesus. They were looking for this reformer. They were looking for their great military leader who would overthrow their enemies and lead the Jewish people to world dominance. They were looking for their king. When Jesus came as the Son of Man, as a servant of the people, as one destined to die on a cross, they they just couldn't handle it. They stumbled. They, They totally missed what the Word of God had taught them concerning that aspect of their Messiah. From the time God slew the first animal in Eden to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve, through the many years and millions of animals that were slain at the tabernacle and in the temple, God was continuously teaching his people that an innocent sacrifice had to die to take away the sins of those who are guilty substitutionary death. And these people missed the servant of God while they looked for a soldier. Certainly Messiah would do all the things they expected, just not when they expected. When they saw Jesus on that cross, they were finished with him. 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25 talks about it, the cross being a stumbling block. It doesn't make sense. This is your leader and he's dying? Where do you stand in regard to the cross? Is it a stumbling block to you? Let me tell you something this morning, friends. Jesus the teacher cannot save you. Jesus the miracle worker cannot save you. Even Jesus, the good example, cannot save you. However, Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God who shed his blood on the old rugged cross, he can save you. It took the death of Christ to open up the way of God. It took the shedding of blood to wash away man's sin. Have you come under that crimson flow this morning? Have you received Jesus and his death on the cross as a payment, as an atonement for your sins. Let me ask you, are you saved today? They missed God's methods. They expected a king and they got a savior. Jesus truly came to set them free, but not like how they thought he would. In those six hours on that cross, Jesus accomplished more than any other conqueror in history. He defeated the most persistent, the most terrible of all of man's enemies. The Bible says that he defeated death, sin, Satan, hell, eternity. Forevermore. If if those people could have gotten the message that God wanted them to get, they wouldn't have just been screaming for his death, they would have been rejoicing. They would have been shouting in victory, knowing that their sin debt has been forgiven, had been settled on that cross by the precious Lamb of God. But they didn't get it. And there's still many in our day today that don't get it. 
Don't let the enemy deceive you here this morning. Salvation is not to the good. It's not to the diligent. It's not to the holy or the people who work real hard or those who help everybody, those who've turned over a new leaf. That's not what salvation is. That's not who salvation belongs to. Salvation belongs to those who come face to face with their own sinfulness. To those who are willing to admit that, first of all, they're sinners. To those who look to Christ, who died on that cross, and come before Him, and they are willing to confess their sins and call on Him for salvation. Have you done that? Have you found yourself lost in sin? That's the first step to salvation. You must come to the place where you see yourself as a sinner. Have you ever confessed yourself a sinner before the Lord? Have you ever come to the place where you knew that you would not be saved apart from the death and resurrection of Christ? Have you turned to Him and Him alone for the saving of your soul? The lifeless body of Jesus hung dead on that cross. The blood had poured out of his body. Coagulated around his feet, down his legs. The awful death he endured on that cross was mercifully over. The two men who were crucified with him side on each side were also dead. And there's a silence as the crowd slowly leaves that wretched scene. They head to their homes. They aren't shouting now, are they? The shouting stopped, beloved, because the object of their anger was dead. If those people on the hillside had known what we know here this morning, they would not have been silent, but they would have been shouting for victory. If they could have just seen the fact that in three days, the one that they just saw die before their eyes would rise from the dead and conquer death and hell and the grave, they would have bowed down before him in humble submission and left that hillside shouting for victory. Yeah, the shouting stopped on that day because Jesus was now dead. He died. His enemy, enemies stopped because the object of their hatred was dead. Even his own followers lost their shout because the object of their affection was dead. But let me remind you one thing. Just three days later, the shouting started up again. See, I'm not here to preach to you a dead Savior. You notice on our cross, we don't have Jesus hanging there, as some churches do, because he's not there anymore. I'm telling you about the one who is alive forevermore to provide you with salvation, and he's going to come back. Are you saved today? Are you trusting fully in Christ are you walking in fellowship with him? 
Are there needs in your life that only He can meet? If there are, He's there, willing, His arms wide open. It just takes a willingness from us to trust Him. Father, we thank You for these words this morning. We thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the text that we read and the story that was told of the entrance of Christ that most likely Palm Monday as he rode into Jerusalem. Lord, I pray this morning that the one message people could take away are not the historical facts or the little story here or there, but Father, the fact that Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. And the last time I checked, we're all lost. We're all sinners. We all are in need of a Savior. If you don't believe that here this morning, I pray that you would even ask God to change your heart. There's nobody here perfect. We all know that. We've all done something that's dishonoring to God. Thought, word, or deed. At some point in our life, we've what the Bible calls sin. We've sinned before a holy God. That sin has to be dealt with. Jesus has dealt for that sin dealt with that sin on the cross, we simply need to claim that forgiveness, put our faith and trust in Him, turn from our sin, turn to Christ. That's what, that's what God desires of you this morning. As believers, I pray that we would believe this message when we go out into this sin-stained world that the people that cuss and do things that are obnoxious and act in a way that's unbecoming to the Lord would not become our enemy, but they would become our friends. That we would reach out to them, the lost and dying world, with the message of Christ. If for no other reason, simply because somebody reached out to us at one point in time. And we heard the message. We were gloriously saved. That still happens today. We just need to believe it. Have faith in the power of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Father, we thank you for our time here this morning. If there's any here who have yet to put their faith or trust in you, I pray that they would just cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help my unbelief. Draw me to the Savior. Show me my need. God, I thank you that you answer that prayer. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.